All right, good morning, Anthem. Uh, you can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. And uh, this morning we are coming to the uh, conclusion of our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and I do want to say a special welcome back to any of the college students that are in town for the first time. Uh, you've probably been watching online, but um, we're getting ready to transition into the fall. So we'll be looking at our vision, our mission, our values over the next coming weeks. And then we'll be jumping back into the book of Acts to finish it out through the fall. So, uh, but this morning we're ending our series in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. And as we end, Jesus is going to leave us with one final question. One final question that this entire sermon has been building up to, that everything he's been saying, it's culminating now in this moment, and the question he's going to leave us with is, is what your life is built on when the storms come? Will it stand or will it fall? Will your life stand or will it fall? As we begin, I think there's a, a helpful story that I heard a few years back, if you remember Hurricane Michael, uh, that swept through the south a few years ago. It was devastating. And uh, there was one house in the midst of this beach uh, that was not destroyed. And the New York Times described it like this. They said, uh, describing it, they said, As they built their dream house on the shimmering sands of the Gulf of Mexico, Russell King and his nephew, Dr. Lebron Lackey, painstakingly documented every detail of the elevated construction from the 40-foot pylons uh, buried into the ground to the types of screws drilled into the walls. As they built their home, they kept asking themselves, what would survive the big one? And this is the result. If you can't see that picture, uh, I'll describe it to you. One of these things does not look like the others. Uh, there is complete devastation. Uh, but there is one house right on the beach, right on the shoreline, that is standing. And not just standing, but essentially in impeccable condition. Other than the power being down, they were able to move back in almost the next day. And what made the difference here? What made the difference was that they put pillars underneath it. They built it down not just on the sand, but down to the rock, the bedrock underneath it. And this captures very well what Jesus is going to say, the last portion that we're going to come to this morning when he says at the end of this passage, starting in verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. See, what Jesus is going to say today as we go through this passage is he's going to start by saying, asking us the question, is your life? is what your life is ultimately founded on, your eternal destiny, the, the reality that goes beyond this life one day when you'll close your eyes and open up to whatever is eternally our future. The question is, is your life and that reality, is it built on sand? Or is it built on a rock? And a rock that will not fail you. And so Jesus is going to begin in the first part, what we'll look at is the question, is our life built on the sand? How do we know if our life is built on sand? And then we'll come to this passage and we'll consider how do we begin to build our lives. And we'll also look at our life as a church body. How do we build it on the rock? I think this is very important to be talking about. 
In fact, these are passages. We're going to look at the narrow way. We're going to begin there and then the famous saying about the narrow way and the narrow path and the, 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 the narrow gate. Uh, and then we're going to end with building our life on the rock. And these are actually, uh, coincidentally, passages and images from the Bible that we have been using as a staff team as we've been considering during this time where we're at as a society. On what does it look like to be a church and to move forward? So I'm excited this morning because I'll be able to share some of those things and look at what it means for us as a church to build our lives on the rock and move forward well no matter what storms come. But before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, there are storms in every generation. There are storms in every day. There are storms internal to us. There are storms external to us all around us. Storms that feel like they're somewhat in our control. Storms that feel like they're completely outside of our control. But yet, Lord, the remedy, the solution, the hope is always the same. That we can build our lives on the rock. We can build our lives on Christ. That he is solid. He does not give way. He does not fail. Lord, help us to grasp this, but not just grasp it, but to begin to build our lives on the rock, to establish and anchor ourselves in Christ. Lord, help us. I cannot do this. Lord, we cannot do this on our own. We are not wise enough. We are not smart enough. We're not intelligent enough. We're not witty enough. But Lord, you are good you are faithful and you provided everything we need in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, help us this morning to make, make much of that truth, make much of Jesus, to see how we can found our lives on him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, leading up to the parable, again, we're going to look at building on the sand. How do we know if we're building our lives on the sand? And leading up to the parable of the, the house on the rock, Jesus asks us to consider if we are building our lives on sand. And he does it by giving us two word pictures. Two word pictures. First, he's going to give us a word picture that involves two contrasting paths, two contrasting paths or ways of life, journeys. And then the second word picture that he's going to give us is going to be contrasting two kinds of prophets. And the question is going to be, uh, who are you following? Who are you following? And so the first, two paths. Look at verses 13 through 14. It says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So what Jesus is saying here, just to summarize, is that every one of us will have to pick a way, right? Remember in like, like grade school when you read like the Robert Frost poem, you know, like there are two paths diverging in a forest, and I took the, remember that? Like, and you're like, and your teachers are like, one day you will choose a path for your life, and you're like, I will choose a path for my life, right? Like we know this from our young age, and Jesus says, yes, you, you will choose a path. You will go down a journey, a certain path, and that will be the journey of life, and you'll take it down that. And he says, but there, make no mistake, there are two kinds of paths. There are two kinds of paths. One enters through a wide gate. And the way, once you go through that wide gate, the, the path is really, really easy. There's, there's not a lot of resistance. And he said, this is actually, counterintuitively, destructive. It's destructive. But it will be the most natural path to take. And then he says, at the same time, though, there's a life-giving path. But counterintuitively, on this path, the gate is very, very narrow. And in fact, the path actually looks like it's going to be extremely difficult. It's going to be hard, he says. It's going to be hard. 
And you can imagine after Jesus says this statement, because all, we, all we're given are these statements here, he, the crowd being like, okay, Jesus, you can imagine like being at some kind of like Tony Robbins event or, you know, you're like some kind of coaching event where you're like, okay, lifestyle, like give me, uh, okay, uh, the narrow, okay, this is the, this is the narrow, this is the difficult, okay, so now tell me how to find the narrow gate, okay, give me, I'm ready to write it down, you ready? Okay, Jesus, I'm ready to take some notes. And then he just moves on, right? Like Jesus moves on to that. He's like, by the way, there's a really hard, there's an easy path. Most of y'all are going to take it, and it's going to destroy you. But I know a narrow path. And they're like, really? And he's like, yep, okay, beware of false prop, right? He just moves right on. Like Jesus would be a horrible life coach. Sometimes when I'm, I'm reading the New Testament, I'm like, ah. But um, so it's kind of cryptic. And in fact, these, these uh, imagery, this, this language actually is not language that's been used previously in the gospel. So you, you can't just kind of do a word study and be like, well, where has Jesus also talked about a gate? Where He doesn't talk about it anywhere else. So it almost lands in, in this very cryptic way. But here's the thing. The entire way that Jesus has set up the Sermon on the Mount, because remember, we're coming to the end now. The way that he set up the Sermon on the Mount right before it is he calls the disciples specifically how? To follow him. To follow him. So if you look at Matthew 4, 19, it says, And he said to them, calling the disciples, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Over and over again, Jesus has been saying, Come to me, follow me, I will give you life. And over and over again, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, the whole thrust of it has been, Do you want to have life? Do you want to know life to the fullest? Do you want to have eternal life? I am the one who's brought you life, and you can know life with my Father, not by just being religious on one side and not just by being completely secular on the other side. You need me, and I will show you the way to my Father. This is why Jesus says he uses very similar language to what he uses here in Matthew, and it might be clarifying he, over in John's gospel. And he says this in John 10. He says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. You want to get into the pen, you want to have life, you want to, want to know this kind of place that's secure, that, that, is, that there's true comfort, that there's true delight and satisfaction and true approval that will satisfy your soul. If you want to get in there, you have to go through me. I am the door. I am the gate. I am the way. And then just a few chapters after that, in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. I am the way. If you want to know the way, I am the way. So Jesus says, not only am I the gate that you enter through, but I'm also the way, I am the pathway. Once you're through the gates and you're on the path of life, you're on that journey, I am the way. The gospel is not just the way that you come into the Christian life. The gospel is the way that you continue in the Christian life as well. And so what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, I am the narrow gate. He's saying, I'm the narrow gate. I'm the way. I'm the way to life. In other words, if you want to find life, the whole journey, your whole life needs to be about following Jesus. It needs to be about coming to Jesus on his terms and following Jesus to enter by the gates and find your identity in Jesus and to continue on the path laid down by Jesus. Now, I know as I'm saying this, my assumption is, and I, I know if I were in your place sitting in the chair listening right now, I know that we tend to, as, as good Christians, we're sitting in church, that when I start talking about we should build our life on Jesus, we should follow Jesus, that we all just kind of nod our heads, right? Like, we're kind of like, yeah, pastor, got that, right? Um, why don't we, let's go varsity if we're going to do this, right? So give me, what do we do? And so we tend to assume this, but I think this is very upside down to the entire notion of how we understand how to live and to think about the journey of our lives in our day. 
uh, one of the, I, I love studying literature. My undergrad was in literature. Um, and, and one thing, some of you may, when I say this, you may be familiar with this topic, but um, there's something called the hero's journey. Uh, and it's this way of understanding every kind of great story uh, throughout world history. And, uh, and there's, there's a famous writer named uh, Joseph Campbell, who was actually kind of a, he was actually a professor of comparative religion and looked at mythology throughout world history. And, uh, and he came up with this, this whole idea called the hero's journey that's, that's underneath every single story. In other words, every single story, how we tend to think and inhabit, we inhabit narratives and we tend to think in terms of being the hero of a journey. And so he talks about why, why stories are so compelling to us. And so let me ruin every single story you've ever heard and are about to hear, okay? Every story starts like this, like Frodo, right? There's a, there's a character. He's the hero of the journey. And so Frodo comes in, and he has a problem, right? And so Frodo realizes, I have a problem, because he has to take this ring, right, to this, this place. And so the hero has a problem. And then once the hero has a problem, then the hero meets a guide, right? That's called Gandalf, right? And so a guide comes in our life. The guide has experience beyond their years and wisdom, and he says, I can fix your problem. And he says, in fact, I can give you a plan. The plan usually comes in the in, in, uh, like in a map or something, right? Like, surprise, I have a map. They're like, there's a plan, there's a path, right? And then they head on down that journey and so on and so on. In other words, every story in some way either follows that or the way you create drama is that you tweak the different aspects of that story. So it's unsuspecting. And so every single story follows that. But here's the re reason why I think this is important. Beca I'm saying this because we are taught from a young age to automatically put ourselves in the place of the hero. Every single, all the stories we inhabit, everything that we think of as a society, we put ourselves in the place of the hero. And so what that means is that we tend to go through life not thinking about the narrow gate, but the very easy path of thinking about what are my problems? What are just the, what's, what's my purpose? What do I want to pursue? What are my desires? What are my goals? And we tend to just lay those down without thinking about anything else. And we tend to automatically, the default position, in other words, is to go through life that way, especially in the West, especially in the West. And what Jesus is saying here is no, 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 no. Don't you want, if, if you go through life trying to just make something up, like trying to make up a purpose, just trying to find that in your career or trying to find that in someone and their affections for you, or you try to find that in some kind of search for security or some kind of search for approval or some kind of achievement, whatever it might be for you, pick your poison. We all have something we're searching for. And he says, if you go down that road and you live for that, the problem is that thing cannot cash the checks that it is writing. In other words, it cannot fulfill the promises that it's been making this entire time. We call it a midlife crisis when you realize it doesn't work, right? That we realize whatever it was that we're just climbing that ladder, oh, especially those of you who are younger, listen. There is something that is calling out to you that's like if you just keep give yourself to this, give your, oh, I'm just going to give it until my hair falls out, which... Welcome to your 30s, right? And so my hair, and so it's like, ah, oh, just a little bit more. I'm almost there. And then when you get there, you look around, you realize I, I arrived, but why is that hole still there? I don't have any higher, there, I, my, my worldview, my system doesn't have any more rungs on the ladder. And what Jesus is saying don't go down that wide path. 
Don't build your life on it. Because when you do, you will find that it's sinking sand. That person, that achievement, that place you could go. Yes, they all can be good and they can be beautiful things. They can be good things in, 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 a, in a non-ultimate way. But any goodness, any beauty, any truth in those things ultimately just points to what only I can satisfy. And so, found your life on me. That means when he says the narrow gate, what he's saying is you must die to yourself, acknowledging it's not my life. It's his. And to die and rise in Christ. And now instead of just saying, hey, Jesus, you're lucky you get to be on my team and come on my journey with me, and we're just going to kind of baptize stuff as we go, and we're going to pretend it's about you, but it's really about me. Instead, Jesus says, follow me. I am the path. And if you do, then he says this later on in Matthew, because here's one thing I struggle with. He says the way is hard. Jesus, the way is hard? I, I thought, but then he says this a little bit later in Matthew. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, yes, it is hard to die to ourselves. Every day when we wake up to realize my life is Christ, it's so much easier just to go with the prevailing winds around me. Just when the storms come, when the waters rise, just to kind of build a canoe and just kind of go along on the tide. But what Jesus says is when you stand, yes, that way is hard, but in the midst of the difficulty, you will find my sufficiency. You'll find my strength. Life will give you more than you can handle. God will give you more than you can handle. But that's the point because it drives you to him. It drives you to him. So first Jesus says, look at the path you are on, but then look at the prophets that you follow. So then verses 15 and 20, he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So Jesus says a false prophet comes in sheep's clothing, right? So a, a wolf, you know, you can imagine a wolf. He puts on a, a, a sheep costume. You know, we're all thinking like the three little pigs right now, right? And so he, he, he goes into the midst of the, the sheep and he pretends to be a sheep so that then he can consume them. Their appetite knows no end. What's interesting is in that same passage in John 10 where Jesus says, I am the, I'm the door, he then goes on immediately to, to describe wolves. He goes on immediately to describe, it's almost, it's very parallel passage to this one, and he says, the wolf snatches them and scatters them. It's the end of a wolf. In other words, he snatches them away from Christ, like away from the good shepherd, and he scatters them away from the good shepherd. The whole point is to get them away from the shepherd so that they, he can devour them. But how do you identify a wolf? Jesus says, look at the fruit. He changes metaphors, and then he says, look at a tree and look at its fruit. What kind of fruit is it bearing? Out of the heart are flowing the true intentions and desires of the heart. So in other words, when you interact with them, it's surprisingly hurtful. You think, oh, this, 
You know, this relationship is going to be like grapes. I'm trying to stick with Jesus' imagery here, right? Like fruit, lush. Instead, you get thorns. Instead, it hurts. Jesus says that's because they're diseased. They're not well, and they produce bad fruit. The kind of fruit that destroys people diminishes them. And there are a lot of them in our world. And why is that? Well, if you think about the narrow path, you think about the broad path. Think about the basic social economics of the broad path. If everyone believes, see, it's great when, like, when I was a kid, for people to tell me, like, hey, one day the story is about you, you can be whatever you want, it's your desires, go on that. And it worked for a long time. Like, I wasn't a believer, it worked for a long time. And then something happened, which is other people came into my life. And they also had narratives that they were pursuing. So here I go with my wife, and now you're like, a lot of you, let me just right now break down the tension when you first get married, right? I've got a story, it's about me. Everyone in my story exists to support my plot line. And now someone else comes in, and guess what? They have a story too. And what, guess what you're there for? To support their plot line. Do you see how this immediately becomes a problem? You start adding in kids, start adding in, you know, a workplace, you start adding in neighbors. In other words, the problem is that in a world that's broadly on or is on the broad path, socially the way we relate to one another is it is my narrative and my story, and therefore you are a means to the end of my story. Everyone is a prop. Everyone is a means. Everyone is a tool for my usage. And when I'm done, especially now you add on to this a consumer economy, when I'm done, I just throw you away like an old McDonald's wrapper. Wolves disadvantage others to advantage themselves. They disadvantage others to advantage themselves. Heard a great illustration about this a few years ago. I think I read it in a book. It was where some folks were driving in the, in the Middle East, and there's somebody who was explaining to them how a shepherd-sheep relationship works, and the bus, he was explaining to them how, you know, a, a good shepherd were, will go in front of the, the sheep, and he'll call to them. And so the sheep will always follow a good shepherd. And so they'll follow them throughout the field, and the bus, tour bus, where this guide was telling them all this about sheep, and uh, and, and finally, this kid noticed that there was a field full of sheep, and the shepherd was behind them. And the shepherd, and he said, hey, actually, there's a shepherd who's behind his sheep, and he's driving them. And, and, the, and the guy in the tour bus driver said, okay, pause, and he had him stop the bus, and he got off, and he went, and he talked to him, and he came back on the bus, and he had a smirk on his face. He said, actually, he's not a shepherd. He's a butcher. You see... A good shepherd goes before you. The one you want to follow goes before you. In fact, what Jesus did was he disadvantaged himself to advantage you rather than disadvantaging you to advantage himself. He laid down his life when you were still a sinner, when you were still his enemy in order to save you. And he calls you to follow him. See, wolves nip at your heels Jesus goes before you and he says, follow me. And you look at Jesus and you go, there's life there. There's grace. There's forgiveness. Like you understand my reality that, that I'm not, I don't have it all together and that, and that I'm not fully satisfied and, and you're just paving the way to go there. But then a wolf comes along and they just nip at your heels and they bark at you and they consume because they're driving you in a way that just goes against your nature. And they're going, but they want to manipulate you to pursue their ends. 
tearing you down. Because often we're so dependent for our own sense of self that we need it from them. And they know how to play that. I'm just going to drop this here. It sounds a lot like the news media and social media these days. There's a lot of consuming, a lot of biting. And Jesus is saying, consider Who are you following? Are they tearing you down? Are they leading you to life? Jesus says, I was disadvantaged to advantage you. Follow me. Find life in me. All else is sinking sand. Consider the path you are on and consider the one you are following. Now, I think as I, you know, we've talked about kind of ourselves, what path are we on, and then we've talked about, you know, who are the wolves out there, and I think before Jesus goes on to the parable of the house and the rock, I think Jesus is always good at this, because I know that my heart, then I'm like, yeah, those wolves, I'm not a wolf, right, I shoot wolves, right, like a shepherd sheep, I shoot wolves, like we get all like, mm, and then we feel good about ourselves, we're like, tell me about building the house in the sand, Jesus, I'll build that house, right, or build it on the rock, anyway, see, I don't know what I'm doing, so, what Jesus says, as a Freudian slip, right? Uh, Jesus says, wait, 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 wait. Just before we move on, I want to make sure we're so quick to look at others. I want to make sure, let's turn the mirror on ourselves for a second. Let's turn the mirror on ourselves for a second. And so he gives them a warning. In verses 21 through 23, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Let these words sink in. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works, mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These people assume they are Christ's followers. Make no mistake about it. And Jesus is saying, this will happen. Now, again, as soon as I say that, we all go, yeah, I know those people. But let's for a second turn the mirror on ourselves. What Jesus is saying is check yourself for external actions that have no, that lack completely internal affections. Check yourself for just essentially bringing Jesus along on your journey. And just because somehow it works for you. Somehow it's, it's just kind of like a step. It's another rung on the ladder that somehow, this is the danger, of course, of being in a Christian society where everyone just assumes, hey, if you're a Christian, that's good, so just go to church and just kind of, you know, sign in, check a box that you were there because somehow it gives you another rung on the ladder of our building towards our own kingdoms versus bowing to his kingdom. And so what Jesus is saying is one of the ways you can do that to check the fruit of you as a tree, is to see if you're rooted in Christ. And if you're rooted in me, those external actions will also come with internal affections for me. You will know me, and if you know me, you will know my Father, and that is life forevermore. That's something we've been touching on again and again in this series, something that Jesus has been hitting on again and again in this sermon. Because here's the thing, before we get to the the parable of the house on the rock, the storm of every age, does not just begin out there. It begins in here. It begins in here. 
Back during the Cold War, some of you may be familiar with Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He read, won the Nobel Peace Prize. He escaped from the gulags of the Soviet Union, and he wrote a book called The Gulag Archipelago. And in this book, he described, he said that everyone was essentially when you come out of it, you're saying, oh, if we could just get down the ideologies right, if we could just get down the, the nations could just get right, if these, this, this people could just be removed, we could just get the right people in power, it'd be right. And he said, no. I've been through too many iterations of this. I've been all around this world, and I've been in prison for years. And he came out, and he said, this is what's mainly true. And he said this, the line separating good and evil passes through not, not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. The line between good and evil runs right through each and every one of us. And Jesus says, have you fallen on your knees and admitted that before me because I am the one who walked the hard path before you to Calvary. I'm the one that took your poisonous fruit upon myself on another kind of tree. And I allowed the wrath of God to be run right through me for your evil. And now I've walked out of the grave and I will give you eternal life. Is your life in me? Or do you say, I have no need of it? I am the narrow gate. I am the path. I am the true prophet. Follow me. Or the fall will be great. So, how to build the house on the rock. I want to explore... Uh, if you guys want to bring up the diagram now or the, uh, the whiteboard, whatever we call this. Thanks, guys. Um, I want to explore this dynamic by looking at, getting really specific about the storm we could say of our day. We've looked at the storm that's in our own hearts and lives, and now we want to look at the storm of our day. And so um, I'm going to do something different because um, what I want to do is I think in our day we're starting to awaken to just how narrow, how narrow the way of Christ is. Uh, that there are so many ways that we conceive of what it means to be a Christian. You can just set it up right, right behind me. Good, thank you. I've never done this before. This is kind of fun. Thank you, guys. Very handsome young men. Why don't you give them a round of applause? That was very nice. Um, so I've never done this, but hey, we're in quarantine. There's lots of things we've never done before. So I'm going to get to draw on a whiteboard today. Um, so I've never drawn a diagram through, during a sermon, but I think it'll be helpful. This is something that, again, we've been using as a staff. And so here's what I want to do. I want to help us think about what's going on in our day. It's kind of an inverse, kind of like a bell curve. And, uh, and where we're at as people is we've been talking about this. How do we found our lives on the rock of Christ? Is our life founded on the rock of Christ? We also build a house, which we could also think of that house as a house that we live in as a church, that we inhabit. And in every single age, there are going to be essentially ditches. In other words, there are going to be prophets. There are going to be extremes, things that call for us and call for our attention and say, actually, this is the way that you should live your life. Every generation, it's different. Uh, every single, uh, in different cultures, these will be different, and they can change very, very rapidly. 
And so one of the things is that we have these ditches that exist in our day. And so these ditches, I call them the, the CTs. Now, I'm about to, because I believe that the gospel does this, I'm about to offend everyone, okay? So my goal is that by the time I leave here, you will love Jesus and really not like me. That's most likely going to be an outcome. And that's cool. That means I've probably done my job. So here are the, I call them the CTs, the two ditches. And I like to say that the ditches are witches, witches, uh, witches because they cast a spell on us. And what I mean by that is they cast a spell, like in the Matrix, when you take the blue pill and you have to go down this hole and then your entire worldview becomes this reality. And these are right now, we have on one side, we have what we could call critical theory. Now, I'm not going to have time to really unpack all these. So I apologize if for some of you are like, I'm not exactly sure what you're talking about. But this looks at every single institution in our land and says completely corrupt and therefore everything needs to be torn down. Everything needs to be torn down. It needs to be built back up. And what it says is that essentially there's no real redemption. At the end of the day, the only redemption is continuous revolution, revolt, and tearing things down in order. And that's how we essentially will eventually find freedom and justice will be found. Okay? So that's one side. I've obviously drawn it more on the left side for a reason. I'm not going to go left or right, but anyways. So lots of things I know that this brings up. The other side, the other ditch, is what I'm going to call conspiracy theory. Okay, that's our second CT. And so conspiracy theory on the other side says that there's actually some kind of ruling alert, or alerts, uh, elites, and ruling elites in some way are the ones who are actually controlling our land, and so there's this big kind of conspiracy about what's going on, and we need to be a part of this conspiracy, and if the church would adopt that, then the kingdom of Christ would really come. And so what life is really about is pursuing our liberties and, and those kinds of things, and there are many different iterations of this. Now, what I should say is I think that there are clearly some positives Strengths and weaknesses, both the extremes. Don't have time to go into all of this. But these are largely right now the things that are pulling at the church. And again, right now, probably all of us find ourselves as immediately once I bring this up as we go, oh, I resonate with that one. Oh, I resonate with that one. Or you feel like you're doing the splits right now because you resonate with both, right? But right now what's happening is that these things are really pulling at the church. And what's being a temptation right now is that if we as the church, and here's what I'm going to also do, we have as a church in the West, because we're built on many kind of Christian principles, Judeo-Christian principles, we have a lot of what I'm going to call down here common ground. And the church in America and in the West is largely built somewhere around this common ground, which means that some of our churches are kind of slightly leaning over this way, and some of our churches are slightly leaning over this way. And honestly, I think that there are, for contextual reasons in certain neighborhoods and certain places, right, honestly, I think there's a discussion to be had about that um, and in terms of how they're thinking about that. But what's happening is our churches are being filled, pulled one way or the other. And as these ditches that are coming up, what's happening is that we're starting to feel a pull as it's getting stronger one way or the other. In other words, these are starting to feel like a storm. And here's where I think I'm going to put my thumb on what you feel. Because of that... The common ground between the church and the culture and a lot of the common ground that we share as believers is eroding. It's eroding. And whatever's here, I'm just going to put, again, why don't I just be as offensive as possible? Let's just put right and left politics, whatever it is. Fill in the blank. 
But these things are eroding, and what's happening is it's eroding all of a sudden our unity. But here's the thing. Our unity actually isn't in these things. Our unity actually isn't in very, I mean, and I think legitimate discussions, again, pros and cons on both sides, legitimate concerns on both sides, legitimate things in our specific context that we're concerned about. You go, you don't understand. You haven't been through what I've seen. I, yes, and we need to have all of those discussions. So by the way, I'm not saying shut down all that. I'm saying let's found, find firm ground so that we can have the hard discussions. Rather than just building everything on sand, and then as soon as the discussion gets difficult, it's like a storm that just sweeps us out to sea, and we have no more unity. Because here's the good thing. This is what's happening. This is what we feel. But this, the narrow way, and this, again, is all sand. But the narrow way leads directly to the rock. And this has not changed. This has not gone anywhere. The rock has not moved. Jesus, the eternal rock of God, the source of our salvation, the grounding of justice, the coming judgment of God against injustice, the alleviation of pain and suffering, the need for you to repent of your sins from individual up to systemic, the thing that will address all evil in the world. And as Jesus says here, it will cut down everything that is evil and it will throw it in the fire. Jesus says these things. This is why right after this, the people say we're amazed because he actually teaches with authority because these things will happen. Jesus says that is not going anywhere. And we as the church will continue to build our unity on this narrow ground and the thing in this next season. This is why in the next coming weeks, we're going to look at our vision. We're going to look at our, at our mission. We're going to look at our values. Because we as the church will build on the rock, and we want you as a church to build on the rock. And we know that as you build on the rock, there are going to be things out here that you go, hey, I feel like God's called me out into these areas. Yes, exactly. You should be called out. We stand on the rock, and we reach out into the world, and we help those who are out in the world onto the rock. But we don't go out and say, let me jump in the quicksand to save you. We stand on the rock. We say, there's a rock, and it's not because of me. You're not grabbing hold of me, but you're grabbing hold of someone who I'm, I'm on a rock and I want you to know him. And what this means for us as a church is that it means that our only hope is Jesus Christ, that we belong to him body and soul completely. It means that our unity, our ability to be forgiven, it doesn't start with making one another agree at these extremes or anywhere in between. We don't say, once you agree with me and you become, uh, and you agree with me on this specific movement or this ideology, then at that point we can be united. That's exactly the upside down of the New Testament. He said, you're dividing along these lines, but instead you find unity in Christ. And then from there, then you can address your differences. And it means that Christ will be our only that you're probably, hopefully, we say all the time, the only offense that we want on Sunday mornings is the offense of the gospel. We do our best to understand how to navigate our cultural moment and how to do that well, but we want to do it in the ark of Christ, on the rock of Christ. And Jesus will be the only. So what's going to happen? In other words, even myself, there will be things that when I'm preparing and I'm teaching, I'm going, man, that has to die within me. 
Because again, to go back, we inhabit narratives. We have whole stories and things that we inhabit to understand ourselves, to understand ourselves as Westerners, to understand ourselves as Midwesterners, whatever it might be. And Jesus says, are you willing to let me be the hero of the story? We will build on the rock and we'll reach out to the ditches. And our love flows from Christ and covers over our various differences. That means that we don't weaponize our disappointments. We don't spiritualize our differences. But we speak truth in love. A love that's rooted in a Savior who died for that very person. If they're your enemy, then you can be assured that they were Jesus' enemy. And he said, my response, I'm going to die for them. I'm going to immediately, once I have all authority in heaven and earth, is I'm going to get down on my knees, I'm going to wash their feet, and I'm going to serve them, even the one who would betray me. This is such an amazing season for us as believers to learn the heart of our Savior. We shouldn't be on fire. We should be going, wow, this Lord, purge me, cleanse me, show my heart so I can see if there's any way that's not of you. Lord, just get rid of it right now so I can learn to serve others. I can move towards them in love. And I don't know how that's possible. But if I seek your kingdom, if I found my life on you, it's possible. See, unity and forgiveness will flounder. If we remove others from the community of humanity, while at the same time removing ourselves from the community of sinners. We are all forgiven sinners, all fallen creatures of a creator who entered this world and died to save us. And so, Anthem, do you see that this is such an unbelievable, this thing, in this moment, this is such an unbelievable moment for the church to be a place where there's actually unity, where there's actually a rock that holds an anchor that holds, almost just threw my, don't throw the Bible at you. This does not have an anchor. Um, this is the world. Um, Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus didn't say that because it would be easy. Jesus said it because it's true. And it's true in the midst of the storms of every age. It's true in the midst of fallen people. It's true in the midst of our weaknesses, in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our backgrounds, in the midst of our past. It's true because Jesus never changes. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, Jesus says. The question is not if the rock will hold. The question is, will we, will you, will myself, will, be, will we be on the rock? The question is not if it will fail. The question is, will we build our lives on it? Because if you build on it, if we build on it, we will stand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we Thank you for establishing Christ as a rock in the midst of the storm. Help us to see first the storm that rages in each of us. Help us to see that the line between good and evil is not somewhere out there, but runs right through each of our own hearts. Spirit, convict us of where we've attempted to build our lives on sinking sand. Point us to Christ, our rock, and comfort us with Christ. Establish us in his grace. 
and help us to love as we've been loved, to seek one another out rather than biting and devouring, not assuming, but approaching, pursuing as you pursued us. Lord, we pray for those all around us who don't know Christ, overwhelmed by the storm raging around us. Lord, send us with the good news. Don't let our witness fail to give them the good news. Send us with the good news. Send us overflowing with the good news because we're experiencing it in our lives with one another. Send us with the good news of the gospel, that there is a rock, and his name is Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.